We made this. Hello and welcome everyone to a podcast devoted to the sounds of cinema and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black. I'm Sean Wilson. And in our latest episode of Between the Notes, we will be presenting music from and discussing the work of Bear McCreary, Benjamin Wolfish, George Fenton and more. Plus we begin a top 10 countdown of the best scores of the master, the one, the only, James Horner. But... We're going to kick things off by coming back to our uh, predictions from the last time we recorded in terms of the Academy Awards. And uh, I think we both went and uh, we, you know, we scored a scored a winner, didn't we, didn't we, Sean? I think we both predicted that Ludwig Göransson was going to win for Black Panther, and he did. He did. And what, what the listeners can't hear now is we're both doing smug faces. Um, so, <laughs> uh, if only we'd put money on it, right? <laughs> so Absolutely. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? It, what a tremendous result. And actually, for me personally, I'm sure it's the same for you as well. That was the result that meant the most throughout the evening. Because bear in mind, I mean, Black Panther made history across all of its categories. It's, um, I believe it's costume and production designers were the first ever african-american women to win recipients of those awards it was obviously nominated for best picture although it didn't win and it's become the first ever comic book movie to win best original score not even john williams managed that for superman back in 1978 i mean that's that's phenomenal <laughs> wouldn't you agree well well yeah but that, i mean that's crazy though isn't it right i mean i mean much, much as this is great for uh Jorensen and you know the, the as you said the costume designers who, who won and everything like that. I mean to to not give it to John Williams for Superman is one of those classic sort of Oscar missteps. What did win? Do you know what instead? Uh, Nineteen seventy-eight. I'm going to take a guess. It was Midnight Express by Giorgio Moroder. I think it might have been, which was a, a peculiar choice uh, a score that obviously set a trend but then you look back at it now and you think mm, more worthy than superman yeah, <laughs> well, yeah it's not exactly aged like as as beautifully in that sense has it really i mean no and, and, and it's astonishing to think that no other superhero score until black panther had been nominated i think neither of danny elfman's batman scores were nominated no previous marvel cinematic universe movie was nominated Jerry Goldsmith wasn't nominated for The Shadow, which was which is one of my favourite superhero scores, so overlooked, um, as Jerry Goldsmith routinely was. Yeah, I just think that they, the Academy got it right in this category this year. The, the Black Panther score is brilliant. What Göransson does, in mixing Senegalese authenticity with the needs of a Western symphonic superhero score, it's a really hard thing to do, as he told me. Senegal, based on rhythm and counter-rhythm, western music largely based on melody and harmony how do you bring those two things together and he did it brilliantly and it's it's such an important character in the film it it communicates so much of the landscape and the inner conflict of the characters yeah absolutely one of the categories they got it they got it right this year and they made history more than makes up for the somewhat lackluster best picture winner but i don't know if we've got time to get into that 
Um, well, I, I think it's more that maybe we shouldn't because <laughs> yeah, think, yeah, right. I, I, I think everyone really is is uh, most people are on the same page about about Green Book. Really, I mean, I personally thought the favourite was going to walk it because I thought the favourite was tremendous, and I'm really shocked that it didn't get best original screenplay. I'm I'm really insulted that Green Book got that because Green Book is not a well-written film at all. It's not one of its strengths. Uh, Similarly, I'm surprised that Star is Born slipped so far down the ranks. When when you consider when it emerged last year, um, everyone was tipping it to to lead the Oscars and it didn't. And it won for Shallow, which is a brilliant duet by Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. And they clearly they performed it live at the Oscars, which was great. But I'm so delighted that Black Panther got it for score because because it, it's it's a trend-setting score that I think I hopefully that will embolden future Marvel filmmakers to give more authority to their composers in terms of coming up with a musical language rather than just coming up with tonalities and rhythms. Hopefully now more composers will feel emboldened to go, oh, okay, we can actually create the sound of a landscape. Well, yeah, you know, hopefully starting with um, Pinar Toprak next, next, this month yes. with Captain Marvel, which is Can't coming out. That. As we record, it should be out imminently in the next week or so. So I hope we, we will discuss that in some respect, whether we, whether we play the music or not, we will discuss it probably on the next episode uh, of Between the Notes because we're really looking forward to that one and seeing what she does. So exactly, yeah, it might, it might continue that, that trend just to go back to the uh, uh the superman issue i've had a look the 1979 oscars as it was the 51st academy awards so you were right sean well done you're oh, was at, it midnight express oh, okay it was yeah. Moroda. your annals of knowledge haven't failed you there that's pretty good <laughs> and it was up against uh, so obviously you had superman uh which was and the three other um failures that didn't win were heaven can wait by dave grusin yeah, Days of Heaven by Ennio Morricone, and The Boys from Brazil by Jerry Goldsmith. So oh. the fact that Moroder won when he's up against Williams, Morricone, and Goldsmith, maybe the three like best composers of certainly yeah. the last half of the twentieth century. It's pretty. It's, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it, it the, the the inanity of that decision comes out when when you describe <laughs> it like that, and it mean any right. of those. I mean, Days of Heaven, I would put in my top ten Morricone scores. The Boys from Brazil is a masterpiece. I'd put that in my top ten yeah. Goldsmith scores. I'm not familiar with Heaven. Can wait, but what what a phenomenal year that was for yeah. film music. <laughs> it was just right. extraordinary. I I yeah. think it probably was was you know an, in essence one of those things reflective of of the time you know it's sort of the yeah. era of disco and Maroda was yeah. you know coming up with all these new you know, sounds and all that kind of thing and I think you know I mean in some in some ways you could you could apply that to Black Panther's win in that it's it's won in a at a point where the cinema of you know African American people is you know has become much has become a much more of a big talking point you know there's a lot of justifiably quite rightly applaud it's going to filmmakers and actors and things like that but if you even if you take that out away i mean it it, it do, doesn't matter any of that doesn't matter the simple fact is the music is amazing the music is brilliant so even yes okay it might have give, been given a boost given the current climate of certain things but doesn't take away from the fact that score deserved to win i think i i completely agree with you i think that the Academy have quite rightly realised that the, the music helps define the film as a cultural moment. It's it's a watershed moment in terms of how superhero movies, particularly Marvel superhero movies, how seriously they're taken. And I think the creativity inherent in the score 
has become one of the real talking points about the um well one of the main talking points about the project as a whole i mean you just think of the uh, the use of the talking drums, the use of Baba Mal, Baba Mal's voice uh, in it. There, there's so much going on in the Black Panther score, rhythmically, melodically, thematically, and I, I yeah, I, I completely agree with you. That that score sums up the intelligence inherent in the film and why people should feel compelled to take comic book movies more seriously because there is real creativity going on in it. I think that's that's the stage we're at now with this particular franchise with the with the marvel cinematic universe yeah i'm just beyond thrilled that that won and beyond thrilled that we predicted it <laughs> backpats all round yeah exactly well, and, you know and, and well done well done academy you know less well done on green book but you know um, you yeah. can't have it all can you yeah uh, it wouldn't be the oscars if they didn't drop the ball <laughs> in the most important no. category because let's face it the oscars always drops the ball it's, in at least one important category it's what they do they're on brand you know so yeah we'll give them that really but yeah well done black panther well done Okay, so that was uh, two Tuesdays from Happy Death Day to You. Uh, I feel like I always have to sing that. You know, <laughs> um, you happy Death you Day to You, yeah. uh, which is by Bear McCreary, uh, which is his second score for the uh, Happy Death Day universe after, in 2017, he provided the music to the first uh, Happy Death Day movie of what is uh, becoming a franchise Jason Blum producing, uh, Christopher Landon directing, and it's very much sort of a, a horror version of uh, Groundhog Day, which a lot of people will have seen. But I mean, it, it, w- one of the reasons we wanted to talk about it on the uh, on between the notes is because I, I don't know about you, Sean. I think that Happy Death Day t- and Happy Death Day to You don't have scores that reflect ho- uh, them being a horror movie. I think these. And Happy Death Day to You builds on what the first one did. They're scored like a different genre. And and it, it's really strange. I mean, do, what what do you think? Do you agree with that? Because when I listen to them, I'm like, this doesn't sound like a horror film. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think Bear McCreary is a really witty, uh, clever composer. And he, he's got a great sense of like knowing irony, which meshes really well with the tone of both of the films. 
Uh, I mean, you think of what he did on on like, The Walking Dead and what he did on Ten Cloverfield Lane with like the blaster beam. You know, I can't remember the the, the <laughs> and then the score outside Star Trek the motion picture that uses the blaster beam, but he brought it back and he's really interested in texture and tone and being playful. He's a really playful composer in his best work. Uh, you think of Colossal, the Anne Hathaway movie that he scored as well, which is basically a, <laughs> you know, a, an intimate monster movie score. I think is probably the best way I can describe that. Yeah, he he's clearly playing off Christopher Landon's very very witty script in but in both films because you've got there are lots of ideas that there's the the character of Tree, brilliantly played by Jessica uh, Roth, who who is the one who ends up being stuck in this time loop with her own serial killer. <laughs> In the first score, it starts off as this kind of sort of slightly ditzy, like pop-infused theme, which then matures and hardens and gains an orchestral stature over time. Uh, and that, that that theme is reprised in Happy Death Day to You. Um, and then there's also the... But what I was reading, what Ben McCreary did for the theme for The Killer was he used the voice of his own infant daughter and sampled it and distorted it. And you've got this like wailing <laughs> sound effect. He, he's got a good sense of humour, and I think, yeah... When you listen to both these scores, they're far, they're far more clever and more ironic than you would expect. I mean, particularly in Happy Death Day to You, which becomes increasing, the, the movie itself becomes increasingly untethered from the whole Groundhog Day meets Scream thing. It, it, it encroaches on the world of science fiction, and clearly, what that does is that allows Bear McCreary to become increasingly liberated from the tropes of slasher movie scores. The score sounds like a sci- an epic science fiction Steven Spielberg score at times, deliberately mm. so, which is really funny. It's amusing to listen to, and it works. It's really well written. It's good music. Yeah, it's it's great music. And, I mean, I, I haven't I haven't seen um, Happy De- either Happy Death Day films, actually. I've not seen the first one yet. And, and you know, as, as I said in the last episodes, you know, me not seeing the films that we're talking about is going to become a running theme. The new ones. <laughs> but uh, I should have really watched Happy Death Day by name, but I, and I haven't. But, uh, you know, when I, I remember listening to the, the score before, you know, and, and it, it really stood out to me. You know, quite, quite often you'll get horror scores that feel very, very much tethered to the, the movie that they're, that, you know, that they're off. I mean, uh, this month we've had um, a film called The Prodigy that's coming out. And the, the, the music for that probably works very well in the context of the movie but when I've listened to it outside of the score it hasn't does nothing for me you know it doesn't stand for me as a piece to enjoy whereas happy death day there is a real you know rip roaring sense of like you say it has those science fiction elements it reminds me it feels like McCreary edging a bit more towards Michael Giacchino territory you know and and having that sense of adventure that sense of you know bombast and it, and I think he's been growing that way like you say, through the Cloverfield, both Cloverfield scores, both of which are very good, it feels like he's been growing that way for for some time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it, thematically he's becoming a more confident composer as well because in in Happy Death Day 2, given that you haven't seen it, I won't give it away. Uh, the, the, the idea is that the, the, the source behind the time loop is explained in the form of this machine that these the other college students have, have made that allows for this really brassy sort of spectacularly symphonic theme there's also another theme which represents uh tree jessica roth's character her relationship with her family um particularly her mother who has passed away which is actually very very emotive and very beautiful it's far more beautiful than we've got any right to expect given this genre like you say normally slasher movie scores are normally you know fairly predictable and yeah you're right this doesn't sound like a slasher score so it sounds more like an adventure score 
and you know that there is a penultimate piece of music which appears to be alluding to a future movie in this series those who've seen the film will know what scene i'm referring to and i imagine that what the plan for this series is that it's going to it's going to become increasingly divorced from where it started which is ditzy sorority girl locked in a time loop with the person who wants to kill her i think it's going to move increasingly far away from that and it's going to embrace elements of seemingly elements of like superhero franchise movies i mean if bear mccreary is still attached to it just think of the possibilities yeah <laughs> there that'll be quite an interesting progression across these scores if that does happen i think it's exciting i mean if it, if it happens at all because i know that the film hasn't done very well uh commercially so you know we might not we might not get happy death day three two three u <laughs> yeah. three u yeah. happy death <laughs> day <laughs> 33 and the third <laughs> uh, right exactly <laughs> so we'll we'll have to see really but i mean the these two scores stand as really great pieces i think this is one of my this is one of my favorites of of the year so far happy death day to you so mccreary's done a great job i'm excited to see what he's going to come up with next so yeah, this is this one is well this one is well worth picking up. It's available now from Backlot Music, so check it out. Okay, so after we did our top 10 2018 scores uh, last time, going through uh, the best music that we didn't get to cover when we didn't have a podcast last year, we got our heads together and we thought, you know, that was quite a fun format, wasn't it? You know, counting down 10 different scores. So um, I said to Sean, why don't we do every uh, two episodes, why don't we do a different composer and talk about our top 10 albums from you know, the best composers and the most interesting composers and things like this. And it made sense to start with one of the greats, really. And, you know, you can't get much better than James Horner, can you really? So um, we're going to go down over the next two episodes from 10 to 1. Um, and in this first little section, we're going to go from our uh, 10 scores down to our number 8 scores um, on our list that we've 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 been busily going through all our horner music and putting these together so sean why don't you kick us off what's what's your 10th favorite you know and, and obviously this is a hard hard list to put together because horner's got dozens of great scores but what's your what's your number 10 of james horner music yeah just before i i reveal what it is can i just say you're a very cruel man for making me do this this was really <laughs> difficult this is a <laughs> This is really hard asking me to whittle down my favourite James Horner music because he he pretty much wrote the sound of my childhood as I imagine he did with with yourself and most people our generation as well. Um, anyone who grew up in the eighties, nineties, you know, well, you know, James Horner's music was synonymous with that era. I'm going to start with an eighties classic, uh, Aliens. So uh, 
1986. Horner's first Oscar-nominated score, getting to that point wasn't easy, uh, as anyone who's seen the behind-the-scenes uh, documentary about the making of the score will know this was one of the most difficult scores for any composer to put together, because director James Cameron and producer Gail Anna Heard were not helpful at all. Uh, the edit fell massively behind. James Horner ran out of time through no fault of his own. Um, the facilities didn't allow him to do the electronic um, experimentation that he expected to do. In spite that, he pulled together one of the sort of darkest, most brutal, and one of the most brilliantly militaristic scores of that decade that defined the sound of the film and helped move. It really helped move the film away from the sort of biomechanical artfully designed surrealism of the first movie which was directed by Ridley Scott and scored by Jerry Goldsmith the sort of militaristic nature of Aliens a lot of that comes from the music um, which it's some of Horner's most phenomenal action writing you think of like Ripley's Rescue Futile Escape um, Going After Newt um, Bishop's Countdown which was used in so many trailers throughout the mid 90s which was that the, that last track was the last thing he threw that together at the very last minute and it became one of the defining action pieces in any film the use of snares timpani kettle drums alongside the symphony orchestra is just this magnificent it's not an easy score to listen to that's why it's not higher up i think there's a lot of bleak kind of atmospheric noodling around which works very well in the film but it's quite hard to listen to outside of it but yeah it's it's a one of the quintessential horner scores i'd say yeah, it's great. Combat drop immediately is where I go to in my head. You know that, yeah, dum, which, dum, which dum, wasn't dum. even used. It was it was replaced. Yeah, know, one of the one of the many things that they fell out over that wasn't used, and, and then the same fate befell Jerry Goldsmith on the earlier film. It's strange, yeah. isn't it? Really, it is. It is crazy because that 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 particular piece of music, you know, when you listen to it on the album, really stands out as a. Um, as as a really great piece of music, you know, and it's it's sort of Horner's riffed on that a lot in in subsequent scores and things like that. So it's yeah, it, it's a it's a great album to a, to a great movie. So yeah, great great choice. My number ten, I've gone for another mid eighties piece, very different one, and I, I've thought I suppose a little bit outside the box with this, and a lot of people may not agree with me, but I've gone for Commando. Um, <laughs> see, I, see i start grinning for me it's weird you just have to say commando is it yeah it's, it's it's yeah well commando obviously it's it's the arnold schwarzenegger starring film as john matrix who uh <laughs> has to go after his, go and rescue his daughter from the most camp and brilliantly hilarious villains i mean if you've never seen commando then i i, I can't i can't tell you how much fun you're missing like yeah, frankly that. what the hell have you been doing if you've yeah. not seen commando really what what have you been doing yeah i mean i i, I was lucky enough to watch it go uh we uh, me and my, a few of my friends went to an arnie marathon overnight last year at the prince charles cinema in london the great prince charles cinema and um commando was first on the bill and i've i can't remember being in the cinema where people laughed so hard i mean it, it, but but in in fondness like you know it's it, it's a comedy it's it's become a comedy now for so many reasons and the the music in especially the title the title track with the really sort of 80s trumpet yeah and and the steel and the steel drums and, and things and like steel that yeah. drums. <laughs> it's it is it is perfect in a way. It's it's perfectly and it's very it's different. It's quite different from a lot, or it seems to me to be quite different from a lot of what Horner does elsewhere. You know, in a lot of his other scores. So you know, you'd listen to it and you might not necessarily think, oh, that's James Horner. But 
it's one of those scores that just really fits a film well and commando has has gone down has become one of those movies that he didn't realize how funny it was it didn't realize what it was doing i think at the time fully i think it's become one of those films where time and just evolution has made has made that grow more fond in in the in the minds of people so yeah that's it's it's an odd it's an odd horner choice but i i i couldn't leave commando out because when, when i watched it last year i was like the music's great i love the music for this <laughs> i so, think it's an admirable choice because not a lot of people would pick it um, and no, like you say no. a lot of people would forget that horner scored it in the first place. i don't know how on earth he came to score it in the first place because it's yeah. not a sort of film that james horner no. would normally have done but yeah it's, it's an interesting choice you know even even then he'd done i mean that was 85 i think commando so even then he'd done wrath of khan and he'd done search for spark and very, you know what I mean? All the film scores that track more with, you know, a lot of the other things he'd done. But yeah, I love it. Yeah, it just you must have seen Commander. If you haven't, get on it. Honestly, you won't have many more fun ninety minutes watching and, and, a movie. And if you're a James Horner fan and you haven't heard his score, be prepared because the sort of synthesized campiness yeah. of it is <laughs> very tongue in cheek <laughs> and quite odd. It's yeah. brilliant. I love it. Um, so yeah, that's that's my unorthodox number ten. So, uh, what's your number nine then, Sean? Uh, my number nine is Brainstorm, which is a, a film that a, yes. a lot of people might not be familiar with. This is a, a, a real cult movie from the uh, early eighties, d- directed by Doug uh, Trumbull, um, sort of renowned uh, special effects um, special effects designer. And yeah, it's an odd little film. It stars Crystal Walken and Louise Fletcher, and it's about brainwaves and sort of mind manipulation. It's a strange, strange little movie. But James Horner's score is brilliant, and it gives so much character to the movie. And one of the things the score does very, very well is it flip-flops between really elegiac beauty and moments of incredibly dissonant and shrill horror, and you're not quite sure where the flip is going to come this this reflects the sort of contradictions in the story uh, i think the one the main reason why i picked it is because there's a track called michael's gift to karen which is among the most beautiful pieces that james horner ever wrote and i don't say that lightly because james horner wrote more beautiful pieces of music than a lot of other um composers uh, yeah it's just stunningly beautiful there's a string arrangement and the piano arrangement in that particular track that's really great and on the flip side to make my earlier point there's a track called i think first playback which has got incredibly shrieking avant-garde choral effects in it which are really frightening actually so the frightening music in it um anticipates what he would do later in um, aliens so yeah i think it's it's um i mean among james horner aficionados this score is held up very very high i'd say among casual listeners they might not necessarily be aware of it but i would encourage people to go back and listen to it and to watch the film as well because the film's really interesting yeah um shocker i've not seen the film but i have listened to the it's it's coming up very soon for me actually on, on 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 my list so it's yeah i think you may have got me into this actually i think you might have put me onto brainstorm because i i I haven't seen the movie so i i I wouldn't have been aware of the score but uh it is really quite frightening you know as as a piece of music sometimes it's beautiful but it's also quite scary and he, he he manages to weave all that together so well as you've described uh so yeah, it's 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 a great. It's, it's not very long as an album. It's you know the one that's certainly on on Spotify right now is is fairly short really, but it's some great some great music on there. So it's definitely definitely one to dig out really because uh, it, it, it's 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 a it's a cracker. My number nine then is Bicentennial Man, 
from 1999, which starred Robin Williams as a uh, an android based on the novel The Positronic Man by Isaac Asimov, and it's uh, it, it's it's a it's a, it's a film by Chris Columbus. I mean, it's 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 a decent film. You know, it's quite it's very schmaltzy. You know, it's very Hollywood schmaltzy. Um, but I love the music to this. This this is this feels like more like the the Horner, the melodious, soft, you know, quite melancholy, sad Horner that that you that you'll get in some of the later scores. I think. Yeah, I think one's response to this score it, it very much relies on how generous you are towards Horner himself, how much you're disposed towards his notorious tendency to self-plagiarise because as as everyone who follows Horner's music will know, he was not precious about stealing motifs or even entire passages from his earlier scores or indeed from other, other composers <laughs> either working in film or otherwise and I think, um, to be honest I don't really remember this score that well I vaguely remember the movie being a load of like whiffling like, nonsense it's one of those like <laughs> you know, slightly sick-making, like, Robin Williams family movies that he did, you know, every now and then. I I remember the score being a patchwork of pretty much every Horner score that I'd heard up until that point. And again, if you're a sucker for Horner like I am, he kind of, he gets away with it. (laughs) I'm not sure if there are any marks for originality, though. The film is is nice i think if you you've got to be in the right mood i think for it you know it's quite long and it goes on for quite a while and it's quite a long spanning story i i think if you if you're generous to it i think there's there's the stuff to enjoy but i do like the music i really do it's very it's very pastoral it's very relaxing it is horner coming up with some quite beautiful melodies so I, i i really like that one it's definitely better than the film even yeah, like you say, it is Horner pilfering a little bit from himself. So yeah, that's my number nine. What's your what's your eight then, Sean? Uh, number eight is the Rocketeer from nineteen ninety one, oh, yeah. I believe. Well, just I mean, we, we actually, funnily enough, we were talking about um, superhero scores earlier and comic book scores, and it's certainly uh, the Rocketeer owes itself to kind of pulp um, comic book style adventures, like retro adventures, and it's interesting that. Joe Johnston, the director, went on to make Captain America, the first Avenger, which was scored by Alan Silvestri. I think both films are underpinned by a lovely sense of period detail and just a, a sort of rip-roaring sense of unironic fun. And the first Avenger had a brilliant score by Alan Silvestri, one of the best scores in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And The Rocketeer has got one of James Horner's best adventure scores. It's just so, it's so big-hearted and so thrilling and the sort the brassy main theme it, it gives you the feel of flight i mean horner was so good at ensuring that his music embodied the characteristics of the film in question he was tremendous at that and just to use the full symphony just to give that sense of fun it's one of those scores but i don't know if you would get a score like that for a film now because it's so unabashed in its sense of orchestral heroism and grandeur particularly in the main rocketeer theme uh, which receives a magnificent end titles um, summation as well. It it just it works so brilliantly well in the film, and yeah, it's 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 brilliant. Even even though at the very end of the end titles, to go back to the whole self plagiarism thing, there is a wholesale section lifted from Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan right at the very end of the yeah. end titles in the score. It's like oh James, it's like but we'll forgive you for that because. <laughs> The rest of it is so magnificent. Yeah, I think it's one of Horner's most purely entertaining 
scores. That was a bit Bond Girl then. Oh, James. Oh, James. It was, yeah. it was <laughs> it. Could go Alan Partridge. Oh, James. Oh, <laughs> James. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is unusual now. I don't think you would get many scores like The Rocketeer. You're absolutely right. It's um, it's a beautiful piece. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great choice. My... Number eight. I'm not going to say too much about because it it's brainstorm. So we've we've just we've just covered that really. So yeah, I, I can't really echo what we talked about. So that's that's our top ten to eight of Horner scores. We'll be back a bit later to count down, continue the countdown, and we're going to produce at numbers seven to five. So uh, keep your ears peeled for more Horner chat. Okay, so that was um, the title track from Serenity, uh, which is the Don't Laugh, which is the new film from. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even watched this yet. No, I'm, no, I'm neither going have I, to. Actually, I've not actually seen this yet. I just want to point that out. <laughs> yeah, same. And and I'm going to watch it maybe tonight or very soon as we record because obviously it's, this has been a dual release on in UK cinemas and on Sky Cinema so anyone with Sky now TV can watch this at home which is what I intend to do even though <laughs> it's been universally panned and derided for some time now um, obviously it came out in the US a bit earlier and uh, directed by Stephen Knight starring Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway with a score by Benjamin Wallfish which seems to tap into the uh, the sort of old world. You know, it's been described, uh, charitably described as, as sort of harkening back to sort of Billy Wilder sort of romantic films and and things like this where I, th- I think I think that's being very generous from what I've heard. But it's it's trying to capture maybe an old, old world style sense of, you know, um, nautical romance and things like this. Now, I, I, I'm not going to judge it yet, much as everyone's taking the mickey. Let's talk about the score because I I thought this wasn't bad really I, I think I think Wallfish is you know he's still an emerging talent really in many ways and this certainly feels like a little bit on on brand with the kind of you know very relaxed calming or myst- almost mystical sort of sounds that he's that he's produced that's that's what I got from this it was it was he really wanted to try and capture a sense of ethereal mystery I think with this score. I mean, what, what do you make of it? Do you do you think it works as a piece independent of a film? Obviously, neither neither of us have seen yet. It, it's difficult because I like 
Benjamin Wolfish's work a lot, particularly his work in horror movies and, and thrillers. He's really emerged as a really vibrant talent in that, most notably with It, which obviously went on to become the most commercially successful horror movie to date. And his score in that was brilliant, the way it inverted the nursery rhyme themes and mixed it with this lovely, wholesome theme for the central characters, the losers. That was a really, really good score. And it worked brilliantly in the film and it made the film a more powerful experience. Uh, This, I I kind of, I I was kind of let down with it because I think the entire score is cut from the same cloth, which is sort of dreamy, languid, more than a little portentous. It's the kind of score that undoubtedly accompanies a a movie that thinks it's more intelligent than it is. (laughs) (laughs) Judging from the reviews, that's exactly what the film is. Um, Apparently the film is beyond idiotic and has got a twist in it, which (laughs) I haven't even seen it, but I've read a description of the film. I think I've guessed what the twist actually is, which obviously I I won't give away. I, I think I've guessed it from it actually from the score Right, because yeah, if you yeah, look at the, the last titles. few tracks, yeah. titles, I think it gives it away to some yeah. extent. I, I, so. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think yeah. I think the score is un- disappointingly repetitive, and there isn't enough variation in the tone of it for me. And the score pretty much starts and ends in exactly the same place, with exactly the same kind of tone, using the same kind of textures, which is very languid sustained strings a little bit of an eerie chorale effect every now and then which is very effective i mean the interesting thing is there's no attempt to score the location of the movie which i think it was filmed in mauritius it's set in the plymouth islands or or somewhere there's no real attempt to do that which is not necessarily a bad thing you think of what like john barry with out of africa he refused to score the landscape he scored the characters that's perfectly fine but there also doesn't really appear to be any attempt to play up the noirish aspects of the characters, like Anne Hathaway is like the femme fatale who like apparently lures Matthew McConaughey's character in. There's no real attempt to address that. All of the score plays out in this kind of like I hate to use the word, but slightly dreary, um, samey sound. Some of the material in there is very, very good. There's a track called "The, the Girl at the Bridge," I think, which builds to some kind of beautiful choral crescendo. That's really nice. But they're, they're isolated moments, and I think Benjamin Wolfish has done better work elsewhere. I mean, certainly, you listen to this, the, the, the vast majority of this score sounds like the softer moments from It, which was a vastly superior score to this, no doubt, because the film actually inspired him to do some really good work. I mean, obviously, Stephen Knight, writer-director, has to foot the blame, as any director does, if there, if there are failings in the music. A lot of that has to fall at the feet of the director for not maybe encouraging the composer to be as creative as they as they ought to be um it's it's not a terrible score i thought there were there were beautiful moments in it but i just i think wolfish has done he's done better elsewhere i think yeah it feels a little flat doesn't it in, in at times it's it's yeah it just like you say it sort of doesn't really develop it sort of goes around the houses and and it's a little dull and 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 that is a shame i mean it, it, by the sound of it, the film's anything but in a way. It's, so, it's going to be so wacky. <laughs> yeah. like, well, well, this, know, this, I, is, this is the point, yeah, because the film sounds utterly bonkers. So you think, yeah. okay, there's going to be a lot of like variations in the tone of the yeah. score. You think the score's going to go all over the place. Well, it doesn't. The score just kind of you know, noodles its way around in it, in it, with every track pretty much sounding similar to the one before it, which I'm kind of surprised. That. So there's obviously, Stephen Knight obviously got Wolfish to underplay the tone of the score by the sounds of it, presumably because the film was so ridiculous. <laughs> Maybe he thought, you know, if, if I have overblown music in this, it will make the film even more ridiculous. I don't know, that's me speculating there. But <laughs> well, well, yeah, it could be. And it's also indicative maybe of the fact that 
they thought they were making a different film than they did and it means they weren't all in tune you know when you get a great score to a really good movie like Black Panther as a good example we talked about earlier it all feels in sync it all feels like they're all on the same page they understand they've got this relationship whereas you know maybe if this film is a bit mad and the score doesn't reflect that it's because they didn't necessarily think this film was mad (laughs) (laughs) they thought it fit more with what Wallfish was doing who knows Um, I'm, I'm very curious to see how bad this film is and you know the score isn't definitely isn't bad you know there are there are like you say there are moments in it there are points where it's it's quite nice and it's uh it's there are moments of interest but yeah it could have been better i think and i don't think it's necessarily going to stand out in the wallfish canon but it's out there um if you if you want if you're brave enough to take the film on then take the score on it's uh available now from milan records So we're back with James Horner. We're going from a fairly dull score to uh, some far from dull uh, scores as we count down seven to five. So I'll kick us off with number seven and I've gone for Deep Impact, which is uh, another soft... I do like my soft Horner scores sometimes. I'm not going to lie. Another soft score from um, Mimi Leader film from 1998... One of the the two asteroid movies of that year that were duking it out. And the one that always gets remembered is Armageddon, which I was happy to Armageddon out of there when I watched that. (laughs) Very good. Bloody awful. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I've never liked that film. I never will. And and it just, you know, at that time it was all, it was the Aerosmith song that just dominated the, you know, the the charts for like 12 weeks or whatever it was. (laughs) And it was all that. And you know Deep Impact got overlooked even though Deep Impact is by far the better movie and it's a far more ensemble interesting way into the idea of an asteroid hitting the earth a far less aggressively uh, American chauvinistic way of doing it and 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 Horner scores it really beautifully he's got a real mix of of stuff you know what the one that always sticks out to me is this beautiful piece called The Wedding which is sort of the theme for Vanessa Redgrave's character who sort of meets a bit of a sad um, end uh, the mother of Taylioni's ostensible lead, and it's a really beautiful. He's got he's got this piano theme that goes runs through a lot of the Deep Impact score in the, in those softer moments, which is really beautiful. And and I think there's there's so there's a real mix. There's some more of that perhaps slightly more militaristic action based music at times for in Deep Impact. But when but he always keeps a very emotional core to the score. And I, I love it for that. Yeah, I think it, it, it's a disaster movie in which James Horner scores the people. He doesn't score the disaster, does he? And again, it almost seems counterintuitive. But James Horner was always he was always a composer interested in in romantic melody and in people. He wasn't necessarily a composer who was interested in hardware. He said after he reunited with James Cameron for Titanic, they made up their differences. He said he understood Titanic as a project a lot more than Aliens, and because Titanic had a human focus to it, a tragic focus. And I think obviously Deep Impact came out the year after Titanic and there's a lot of Titanic in there. There's a lot of that melancholia, fragile beauty. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a, it's a perfectly pleasant Horner score. Actually, again, not one I've necessarily returned to regularly. I mean, I think if I'm thinking of his stuff from 1998, maybe um, The Mask of Zorro. Um, mm. I, th- I believe that was the same year. 
but uh, yeah, it was. It, yeah, um, but yeah, it's, it's. I mean, it shows that Horner could take this, you know, big budget material and bring it right down to earth and make you care about the people involved. That's a real skill. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think it's because I've always loved that movie. You know, I, I remember watching it. Um, I was sixteen that summer, so it was it was, it was one of those films uh, alongside the X-Files movie that I just really stick in my head, you know, in the summer of 1998. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think uh, I've always loved the film and the score's always always resonated with me. It was a good year for Horner, I think, 98. Um, certainly on the basis of those two you mentioned. What's your number seven then, Sean? What have you gone for? Uh, so from 1998 to 1988 with The Land Before Time, anyone who was born in the late 80s, early 90s will remember this yeah. movie ripping their heart out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, James Horner's score is largely responsible for that it's a Don Bluth uh, animated movie about dinosaurs facing imminent extinction and uh, Littlefoot losing his mother who then appears in ghostly visions later on it's a heart-wrenching film it's 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 a film that I think made a lot of kids grow up when they watched it you know um, I mean obviously a lot of Disney films dealt with death of parents as well but this one deals with it in a particularly profound way I think and ha- what Horner's score I mean Horner's score is magnificent and it's when you listen to it on album like Horner liked to score he liked to score in big suites of music like the um so eight to ten minute passages of music and sometimes even longer that hit a lot of very very complicated beats along the way he didn't often like to break up his film music into sort of little in individual bitty pieces and when you listen to the Land Before Time score it, is, it unfolds like a like a ballet in a way there are, I believe there are six six passages of music that range between eight to 15 minutes so what you get is this incredibly graceful dance around lots of very different emotions lots of different themes so you've got the um the the, the valley theme you've got the theme for Littlefoot and his mother which is utterly heart-wrenching and then you've of course got the uh, Diana Ross song at the end um is it if we hold on together um, I'm not thinking yeah I think right maybe yeah and yeah it, it, it what it what it shows is that Horner was was very very accomplished at, at treating animated movies like they were serious drama he didn't like Mickey Mousing and emphasizing the sort of more obvious elements he he treated these movies with utmost seriousness it's a shame that he stopped doing animated movies I think after the mid-90s I think Bolto was the last animated movie that he did, which I think was in 1995, because he was brilliant at them. His his capacity for coming up with tear-jerking melodies in films like Land Before Time was, you know, unsurpassed. I think, but yeah, it's a great, it's a great choice, absolutely. I don't know if my number six is a masterpiece, but I mean, it's one of the, one of my favourite films. I've gone for Clear and Present Danger, which is the Harrison Ford starring uh, Jack Ryan adaptation, Tom Clancy uh, of the Tom Clancy book. A real favourite movie of mine from 1994. I love I love both of the Harrison Ford, Jack Ryan films. And Horner obviously scored Patriot Games, which was 92 as well. And uh, I, I really like the music here. I think it's it's very militaristic. It's very, I guess in some respects, jingoistic in some ways. It's very American. It's almost like you could you could wave the, the you know the stars and stripes to some of these these this music. But at the same time he he sort of you know one of the big things about clear and present danger is that it's a film about the corruption of 
of, of a president, essentially, you know. <laughs> Although it's really, compared to what we've got this in this day and age, it's very tame, you know. <laughs> We'd rather have you know. the movie version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Happily, yeah. the worst thing that happens in, in that film is Harrison Ford going and going, oh, Mr. President, you're, you're against the law. Yeah, if, if, if only we had a Harrison Ford going, how dare yeah. you, sir, like that. How dare you, sir. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, you know, I'd happily have the corrupt Mexican drug cartel president yeah. guy than who we've got right now. But so in a way, the film in a little so in some ways, the film hasn't necessarily aged that well. But it, there's, there's a real there's a real charm to it all. And I, I think Horner's music is, I suppose, not as 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 prominent or as, as as beautiful as some of his other scores but i think again a bit like deep impact i think it's a film i've loved since i was a kid and i think the music's always just stuck with me yeah i mean i think it's it's a score that slips through the net with a lot of people actually myself included it's not a horner score that i return to regularly but the end titles which i think is called truth needs a soldier which mm. i think is the end credits music is that right uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, which is brilliant. I mean, it, it brings everything to a kind of valedictory, cathartic sense of the resolution. Because obviously, you know, the movie's got a lot of action, a lot of political intrigue in it. And again, I, I hate, I hate to keep flogging this particular dead horse, but there's um, the the Horner self plagiarism thing again, where there's a scene where. Harrison Ford's trying to hack hack his colleague's computer. Yeah, um, yeah. And then what you get is the. Um, the, the opening bit of music from Aliens is, is used in it, but then you get the, mm. the Horner like rumbling, crashing piano, as it's called, which was a really yeah. effective device to use that. And a lot of, yeah, yeah, and it's that. really startling, and, and, it, and it really raises the tension. Yeah. But again, you listen it to does. it thinking, I've heard this somewhere else before. <laughs> um, yeah. which can that be scene's brilliant, though. That scene is the best. You, you never, you never in the history of cinema are you going to find a, a better scene that's more tense that involves two middle-aged white men printing <laughs> out a piece of paper. Like yeah. it is, it is astonishingly good. And, and <laughs> never that. has a piece of paper been so aggressively thrust <laughs> yes. when Harrison Ford Paul, does it. If you watch that film, I've no idea how he doesn't rip that paper when he pulls it off the printer. It doesn't, doesn't make any yeah. sense to me. He grabs it like he's he's wrestling it. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, <laughs> that film is is great. And like you say, that, that end theme, he, he, I think what he does in both of those movies, he scores a really great theme for Jack Ryan that it's a shame we haven't had carried through in many ways by subsequent composers in things like, you know, The Sum of All Fears. And obviously that was Jerry Goldsmith. And that was a really good score. But... It's it's a shame almost that that theme hasn't sort of stuck with Jack Ryan through this because it's it is a really really good theme scored for a proper American hero in many respects you know because Jack Ryan is ultimately a, a stand up you know defender of American values so it's he does it he does it really well and I I just I I think he there's lots to that score it's one to rediscover I think and if if you if you've not seen Clear and Present Danger get on that because it's a cracker it's a cracking political 90s thriller agreed what's your uh, number six then George? uh it's braveheart uh, from 1995 ah, uh, a biggie yeah what more needs to be said about braveheart uh that hasn't been said uh, one of the um pivotal scores in horner's career and again as i mentioned earlier with reference to bolto this was one of the scores that cemented him as a, a really extraordinary dramatist uh, say what you will about the film and and uh, to be honest with every passing year i find the film increasingly ridiculous and harder to take um yeah it's not great is it it's, it's, it's not, not great there, there are strengths no. in it the, the battle scene's yeah. brilliantly done but it, it, it's an egotistical exercise but there's no faulting james horner's music 
it's it's really quite beautiful. Apparently, um, this was the score that convinced James Cameron to reach out to James Horner and get him for Titanic. Because um, James Cameron apparently was moved to tears listening to this particular score with the um, the Huilayan pipes and um, the Boran drum and, and strings, just crafting this very wistful, almost mystical sense of beauty and heroism, which again is because it's a movie that's looking into the distant past, and certainly it, with with the score, you you kind of get a sense that it's it's got a really transporting air of beauty and intrigue to it. I and mean, obviously the two central themes, the Braveheart theme and the Freedom theme, which is first emerges at the Battle of, I want to say, Stirling. You know, Sons of Scotland, <laughs> you know, that bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think my Scottish accent there was worse than Mel Gibson's, which is saying something. I don't think that's possible, Sean, don't worry. Don't <laughs> I'll worry. take that. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> um, but the two central themes are so extraordinarily beautiful and resplendent in that that romantic idiom that Horner loved to express so much. And Horner's infatuation with celtic um, musicology you know it was exercised to an increasingly almost parodic degree in like later scores some some of which didn't even deserve it but clearly in this this was the perfect outlet for that the love of of celtic music Um, i mean that would later flourish in in the likes of titanic yeah this was an oscar nominated score it's it's a fantastic it's actually quite a dark score for a lot of it there's a lot of quite primal brutal material again given the nature of, of the story and what it's dealing with i think a lot of people forget there's a lot of there's a lot of quite murky uncomfortable material in it but it, it's counteracted by some of horner's most majestically gorgeous melodic writing yeah i, I agree i mean yeah it, it's it is beautiful it is beautiful in many in many places i think it, it is age it has aged better than the film definitely so yeah i agree i think i can't put it better i think i think that's a great it's a great choice my number five is kind of an evolution from that, and you mentioned it this one uh, while you were talking about it. I've gone for Titanic, um, which is is probably the biggest film that Horner ever scored. You know, for all the all the films he did, James Cameron's epic nineteen ninety seven retelling of the Titanic sinking, a film everybody's seen. You know, I, I I I'd be I think if you haven't, if you've not seen Titanic, then have you ever watched a movie? You're like it's it's just yeah, it's, everybody's seen it, regardless of whether you think it's great or not. I mean, I've always thought that Titanic is great about about ninety minutes in. That's when it kicks into gear. <laughs> when, when when danger actually starts to basically to set yeah, in, yeah. <laughs> when they hit the iceberg, yeah. it all. The, ironically, the film doesn't go to shit. The film gets good as the, as, as the situation. Yeah, you've gone through shit. all the kind of soppy romance in the first oh, one. So like, yeah. just just get on. Let's just get on with the actual let's, story, let's shall we? Yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I I need. It's been many years since I've seen it, and maybe you know, as a as a mid thirties married man, I will enjoy the first ninety minutes more. Who knows? But there's no getting away from the fact that Horner's music is beautiful. You know, throughout, and obviously. It's one of those things where that film again was one of those films that got overshadowed by Celine Dion and the and my my heart will go on. Although as as me and my friend coined because we were at school when uh, Titanic came out for us, it be- very quickly became the hot dogs go on. Um, <laughs> you so- did the old Mandela effect, did you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the yeah. the Mengler effect, yeah. uh, <laughs> as they call it. 
Um, but yeah, it's uh, the man. Yeah, oh, it, it was the hot dogs go on. So it, whenever she sings it now, it's the, the hot dogs go on. <laughs> yeah, um, which I, you know, and I defy any of you to get that out of your heads now. You, it's in there. You've, right, you've ruined it for everyone. You, you I've have, yeah, it for all of you. It. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, it, it's Horner's music's great. You know, he really he really gets that Celtic feeling in with a lot of the the sounds for. Jack and Rose, and and you know he captures that that early twentieth century high society glamour mixed with the rough and tumble of the the, un, the underclass, you know, because Titanic is all all about class. And it's all about. <laughs> oh, you're, class you're talking about the Irish all down oh, no, on the road. That's I mean, for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It is very on the nose. You know, there's no getting away. I mean, he 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 did a lot of this in Patriot games. He takes a lot that he yeah. did in Patriot games, where he ba- he scored the IRA like. He was, you know, like an Irish pub playing the <laughs> yeah. fiddle. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it couldn't be more on the nose. But it was, it was good. I think it, it gets you into that. And then when when it becomes more percussive, as you know, as the ship's going down, and it, it builds on a lot of the stuff he's done before. He sort of brings a lot of this, brings the Braveheart stuff you've talked about with, you know, scores he's done before together. And I, I think, I think it, 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 it's good. You know, I think for a film which is flawed. I think he brings a great musical palette to it. Yeah, I mean, it won him his first Oscar. Um, and can I say I hate the Celine Dion song? I think it's, I think it's awful. Um, <laughs> I mean, if we're yeah. talking about vocals within the within the soundtrack, uh, what I love is Horner's use of the Norwegian soprano Sissel. It's her incredibly haunting voice that acts as like the lament for everyone who died on the Titanic. Whenever her voice is used in the score, it's, it's enormously eerie and powerful. I mean, it, again, it shows Horner was a great dramatist. It, it's another one of those counterintuitive Horner scores. It uses new age instrumentation to score a turn of the 20th century story, which you think that that wouldn't work, but it did. I mean, I think for that reason, I think this particular Horner score for me has dated a little bit more now than a lot of his other timeless orchestral works around the time. But it was an interesting decision to, uh, apparently I think a lot of that came from James Cameron as well, which was that you know, try and lend a sense of the modern to some, to a, to a past tragedy. And, and it works very, very well in, in the film. But of course, when he does break out the, the orchestra, like the hard starboard scene, when they hit the iceberg, that's an it's astonishingly well scored and spotted scene. I mean, anyone of our generation i mean anyone who was around when titanic came out i didn't see titanic in the cinema because i was too young but i saw it on video that scene electrifies the attention largely because of horner's score which throws back to alien there's great use for anvil and strings which incredibly urgent and right from that moment you know that the ship is doomed uh, completely doomed so yeah actually i mean funnily enough it's not in my top 10 which is kind of strange given that it it was the score that got horner the oscar and i think it's the best-selling soundtrack album of all time i think i don't think anything's topped it since yeah i think i think for me there are excellent moments in it i for me it had to give way to other stuff and i can just hear all the horner fans going what (laughs) yeah well, not necessarily. I mean, are you about to prove your point with your number five, Sean? Let's see. Yeah, my number five, uh, Star Trek, The Wrath uh, Roth of Khan. Uh, Roth? Yes! Wrath, um, did I say Wrath, that right? Wrath. Uh, Wrath, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully this will allay any of the controversy over um, you know what I've just said about Titanic. Uh, I don't think anyone would argue this being in the top ten horror scores of all time because it is one of his defining works. 
it laid down a lot of the instrumental and tonal techniques that, that he would use in pretty much all of his ensuing sci-fi adventure fantasy scores. I mean, you think of like Kroll, for example, and, and at the same time, this one also throws back to an earlier score that he'd done, Battle Beyond the Stars, the Roger Corman movie, which was so close to getting in my list and I had to sacrifice it, uh, which was a really hard thing to do. Um, no, uh, Wrath of Khan is is brilliant. It, it's, an, it's an interesting variation on jerry goldsmith's much more cerebral atmospheric score for the motion picture uh this is uh, without wishing to sound detrimental horner scores this is much more of a straightforward adventure with emphasis on the brass and lots of rhythmic propulsive nature i mean you've got the the battle in the mitara nebula sequence which one of horner's early defining set pieces which shows how well he can weave together musical action over the course of six seven minutes is incredible and, and obviously the main star trek theme is now you know immediately it became one of the most famous film themes of all time and its sense of optimism and warmth and joy is i'm sure you'd agree it's it's brilliant it's, it's so great yeah. it's it, it, i'm gonna i'm not gonna say too much about it because it is gonna be in my top my top list um in the next episode but it is for me an absolute masterpiece. You know, I mean, I, it, I mean, I am again. I'm biased because The Wrath of Khan is my favourite sci-fi movie. It's one of my favourite movies of all time. I think, I think the film's a masterpiece as well. But Horner's music. I mean, there's no getting away from the fact that film wouldn't be as good without this music. There's, it just wouldn't. This music does so much, so much to make that film as good, as great as it is. You know, it for, it does everything. It has it has amazing character themes. For characters who already, you know, were, were well ingrained in popular culture, you know, Kirk, Spock, Khan himself, you know, it, it, it brings out that it brings out themes for, you know, for, for the Enterprise, for Starfleet that are different from the kind of things that Jerry Goldsmith did in the motion picture, which is equally a masterpiece to the previous score. Well, I mean, that's my favourite score of all time, the, the motion picture. So, but this isn't far away either. I mean, it, it's it's just brilliant, and, and like you say, the Battle of the Matara Nebula, and then the Genesis countdown after it are just it's it, it, there are points in this music i'm just i'm both just thrilled and about to cry and i i is not many scores that does that do that for me and and it's yeah i think it's fantastic you know and he then went on and did a really great one after that you know even for a less a less great movie for the search for spark but that's a great score as well so he did he, the two star star trek scores he did were both phenomenal yeah, they're career-defining scores, and certainly if you listen to um, Kroll, which is another one of those Horner fantasy scores that was so close to getting in my top ten, Kroll's an extraordinary score that you can hear a lot of Star Trek in that, as indeed you can hear a lot of the rhythmic devices from Star Trek in Aliens. It, the, the Wrath of Calm was such an extraordinary, um, influential and career-defining score for Horner. I think it was probably the one that announced him to Hollywood, probably more so than any others. I mean, he'd worked with Roger Corman, he'd worked, came up through the low-budget B-movie, ranks i mean battle beyond the stars is a masterful score but i think roth khan is the one that made people go wow who is this guy you know he's he's really really good we've got to get him to score our 1980s fantasy sci-fi movie whatever <laughs> it's it worked yeah and quite rightly because it is wonderful so we'll be back for um uh countdown of the the four to one scores uh, from james horner in the next episode so uh, if that's not a reason to tune back in next next time i don't know what is
Okay, so you've been listening to Snowplay from Cold Pursuit, scored by George Fenton, and this, of course, is uh, a film starring Liam Neeson, um, <laughs> who uh, <laughs> stars as um, Nelson Coxman, who is uh, Nels Coxman, um, as he uh, he's a, a snowplay driver who um, goes after a local drug lord after the murder of his son. It's a... Uh, remake of a film from Norway from 2014 called In Order of Disappearance directed by Hans Petter Molland and it's uh, it's a film it's, it's a film that's I mean uh, there's two ways to look at this right it's a film that's either been overshadowed by Liam Neeson not doing himself any favours in the press lately or Liam Neeson is a PR genius because he's made people aware of a film that would have absolutely vanished and been completely ignored by almost everybody because I, th- I think it would have been overshadowed by half a dozen different things. The Oscars, Captain Marvel coming out, Avengers, Game of Thrones, all kinds of things. And I don't know what I don't know where you stand on it, but <laughs> I think I think, you know, more people know about Cold Pursuit and maybe we know about Fenton's score because of all this that's been going on with Neeson. Yeah, well I think somewhat ironically it's been it's been overshadowed anyway. it hasn't really had very much it hasn't had very much well, praise, no. has it, regardless of what, what Liam Neeson so Liam Neeson has both shot himself in the foot and the movie has been sort of consigned as a bit of a footnote, which is kind of ironic really. What about the score though? I mean, because Fenton George Fenton's a funny one, isn't he? Because he's he's been around for a donkey's years. You know, he was doing stuff like Dangerous Liaisons in the eighties. But he's not He's not a major name, is he? And, and he's, and, you know, he, he, this score. I'm not gonna lie. I don't know about it. you. Might have liked it more than me, but it didn't do much for me. Well, it's very different from a lot of the other stuff. I mean, George Fenton is very famous as, as a symphonic composer. He puts a lot of emphasis on med- melody and beauty. And you think, yeah, Dangerous Liaisons is an excellent, excellent example. You think also like Memphis Belle, Ever After. I suppose to a lot of people, he he was best known for formerly being the BBC's in-house natural history composer because he did um, Blue Planet, Planet Earth and so on. And those scores are majestic. I saw him conduct segments from the Planet Earth score live in Bristol and it was was tremendous. It was a really powerful experience. So bearing in mind, I've just said this is a very different score from him. What what it is, I've seen our mutual acquaintance, John Broxton of Movie Music UK, one of the best um, film music critics out there, made the comparison to Carter Burwell's Fargo and I think that is right. There, There is, it's a use of unusual instrumentations to give a kind of folksy homespun quirky little blackly comic feel really i mean there's very little action music in the score given that it's liam neeson and he's going to go around and you know take revenge on people there isn't actually that much action music <laughs> in the score there's it seems to have been done more with a blackly comic um intent which which is interesting but and fenton has done electronic stuff before because back at the very start of his career he did the company of wolves for neil jordan and that was an electronic score, and it worked brilliantly. It was a very, very effective, creepy score that sort of was almost at odds with the classic, classically fairy tale visuals, but it worked. But clearly, in this, what, what also what you've got is um, there are samples from Dan Carey, who is a British um, producer um, and uh, arranger, and there are proper, full-on like sort of samples mixed sections in it which are very very contemporary and I can only assume that, that Fenton called on him to maybe help give the score a bit more of a, of a modern kick to it though those sections are interesting I actually thought the score was was quite interesting I thought there's a clutch of interesting like quite melancholy bittersweet themes in it I preferred it to the serenity soundtrack I thought it was more varied 
and more distinctive than that. It's maybe not a George Fenton score that I'm going to go back to. I mean, certainly I'm not going to listen to this anything anywhere near as regularly as I would something like Planet Earth. Uh, but it, it, it's nice to hear a composer showing a different side to themselves. I mean, George Fenton doesn't do an awful lot of films now. I think recently he did things like Lady in the Van and The Zero Theorem, but he doesn't score half as many movies as he used to. I mean, The, um, the Fisher King was another one that he did back in the early 90s which had a really nice score to it and um, so it's nice to see him still working really it's just a shame that the score has been attached to a film that regardless of what Liam Neeson says is a bit of a footnote yeah and and despite you know un, 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 unintentional or intentional depending on how, how you want to look at it efforts yeah it's kind of, kind of vanished yeah it has vanished admittedly and yeah I, I didn't I didn't love it really I can totally see where you know when, when you talk about how John Broxton mentioned the, the Carter Burwell links i did feel that definitely you know it was it was surprisingly quirky in places but then it just goes off into this very synthetically sort of atonal you know gritty stuff and that that isn't very nice to listen to i suppose it would work potentially with some of the action music but then yeah it seemed very all over the place to me and it didn't engage me in that in that sense that burwell scores often do um, so yeah, I, I I I was quite detached from it really. I am going to watch the movie because you know I, I I like Liam Neeson just going around thumping heads. But mm, I don't I don't know. I think it'd be it'd be nice to see Fenton doing stuff that's maybe a little bit more skewed towards the kind of things he was doing before. But uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's not one for me. Mixed bag. Although I I have heard people say they've really liked it and it's it's gone down well. So maybe like the film, it's sort of slightly divided people who have listen to it so it's maybe one to check out you can get it now uh, from Varese Saraband Records we're nearly done we're just going to do a little bit of a wrap-up. We're going to see what any other business. And um, we've got a couple of other little albums we're going to briefly talk about. Sean, you wanted to bring up something from the start of February, uh, which is uh, a rare Junky XL score that you actually like. <laughs> you anticipated <laughs> exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, Alita Battle Angel. Oh, I'm um, so predictable. Oh. <laughs> Robert Rodriguez movie, <laughs> yeah. produced by James Cameron. So, yeah, what? What what did it for you this time? Yeah, actually, it's quite nice, isn't it, to bring it back full circle with James Cameron, given I started my James Horner list with Aliens. I didn't think about that. Um, yeah, um, Junkit Soul, to give him his actual name, Tom Holkenborg, which he now appears to be going by, I think he appears to be sort of sidelining the Junkie XL moniker, it has, has delivered a series of scores in the past of which I have not been fond. Very aggressively industrial, processed, kind of you think of things like Deadpool and Tomb Raider more recently and bits of Mad Max Fury Road which I really didn't like although I did like other bits of that score the quiet some more elegiac moments yeah I, I, I'm not a fan of his very aggressively harsh sort of quasi-industrials it's, it's just not my sort it's not my cup of tea to quote Spike Lee from the Oscars <laughs> but <That was> great. <laughs> this this score wow this completely took me by surprise I imagine I mean it, for one thing it's easily the best thing that Tom Holkenborg has ever done it's it's really melodic it's really soulful I'm assuming that one of the central tenets of it is to use 
a full orchestral and choral symphony to give soul to the main character played by Rosa Salazar, who is an android with no memory, who's trying to discover who she was. I'm assuming that was the jumping off point for the score. I also wouldn't be surprised if James Cameron, in his role as writer and producer, said to Robert Rodriguez, look, you want a score that sounds like James Horner. You you sound you want a score that would that would sound as if James Horner was going to do this. I would not be surprised if that was one of the central driving sort of aesthetics behind it because it does sound like James Horner, and I, it, I, I, that that's a really really good thing. That's what it needs to sound like. The main theme for Alita herself is really beautiful and long lines and really picks the film up it works very well in the film i don't i didn't think the film was that bad it's kind of struggled at the box office i think although it's done well in china i believe the film is pretty generic it's not terrible Uh, i thought the score stood out very very well in it it it, it gives again a kind of soul and beauty which contrasts very powerfully with the sort of post-apocalyptic landscape that, that it that you see on the screen and i think it's easily Hulkenborg's most sophisticated and accomplished score to date. And I think, you know what? Score more like this, please. <laughs> you can you can clearly do it. And he, he's, he's a smart guy. I've seen loads of interviews with him. He's really engaged, really switched on. And maybe it's the case that, the again, to go back to an earlier point I made, maybe it's the directors who are at fault, the directors who encourage this kind of fairly naff, industrial, ear-bleeding noise. They, they presumably say to sort of Tom Hulkenborg, right, We've got you on for this score, but we want you. We want it to sound like that score from that other person, sort of sub Hans Zimmer thing. Um, and I'm really, really glad that James Cameron and Robert Rodriguez didn't get him to do that in this, with the exception of the Motorball track, which is at the end of the album. But I'll forgive that because there's been so much brilliant stuff elsewhere. Yeah, I thought it was really great. Loved it. I need to go back to it. You know, I have listened to it, but it didn't strike me in the same way. But I, I think maybe I was. I was expecting something different, you know. I mean, I I I, lo- I love Mad, I love the Mad Max Fury Road score. I'm not gonna lie, I, I I've always really liked that. And you know, Deadpool didn't do anything for me, nor did his Tomb Raider one really. And you know, I I I I I appreciate that music a little more than you do. But this, you know, I I yeah, I need to rediscover it. I need to go back and have another listen because there's clearly stuff in there that I've missed. So. That's going to be exciting to do. So yeah, it's, that's 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 one to, to have a look at. A recent film that's just come out uh, as of the weekend we record is a film called The Aftermath, starring Kira Knightley. Another Kira Knightley period drama. We've had two this year. Yeah, following um, already, Colette, wasn't it? Yeah, following Colette, which itself had a beautiful score, which I think we talked about before. Um, and this has got a great score by uh, Martin Phipps, a British composer, and. Uh, it's just lovely. It's 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 a really really surprised me. You know, the film. I don't know a lot about the film, but. Um, the, the the score is really brooding, classical, sonorous, very melodic. It's you know it's a, there's a wartime aspect to the movie, and there's some really amazing moments where you actually hear like the bombs going off of, of wartime bombs echoing in the background of this of this music at the same time. I, I I thought it was fantastic. It's it's it really stood out to me as one of the best scores so far of the year. Yeah, I really liked it as well. I, again, I haven't seen I haven't seen the film. It's not had great reviews, but the score is beautiful. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. The use of the bomb sound effects in the opening track kind of grabs the attention, but then it moves into this extraordinarily beautiful theme for Kira Knightley's character, which is gorgeous. I mean, that's got to go down as one of the most beautiful pieces of film music so far this year. And as I understand, I mean, the, the movie is based on a on a novel, and from what I've read about the film, there's a piano that, which is one of the central kind of objects symbols in the story. And then the way that her theme is translated onto the piano 
by Martin Phipps, presumably in a moment of self-realisation or self-awareness, whatever. I mean, I'm assuming that's what happens during that particular, during the scene that that music accompanies. It's gorgeous. It's really nice. And yeah, I mean, Martin Phipps he works a lot. I think he works a lot on like BBC dramas, like War and Peace and things. I think he deserves more films because this really caught me off guard. I wasn't really expecting an awful lot from it. Having heard that the film was pretty dull, I wasn't really expecting... I was expecting a bit of a lacrimose, maybe slightly languid, unremarkable scoring. The, the melodic ideas in it are really emotionally direct and really piercing. Yeah, really, really good score actually. Real, real surprise, a real surprise um, of this of this month of this year. So there must be something about Kira Knightley being in films lately with great scores, well, yeah, I mean, great classical scores. Well, yeah, I mean generally you think of what Dario Marinelli did for Atonement, which, yeah. which won an Oscar. Yeah, she, she clearly and Rachel Portman for The Duchess yeah. and Never Let Me Go as well. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of great, great scores for Kira Knightley movies. Maybe that could be a theme in a future podcast. Or something. Maybe. Maybe. If it gives us a chance to play Anna Karenina, yes. then I'm all for it. Yes. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> that's, score, yeah. That's a beautiful score. Um, so yeah, check out check out Elite Battle Angel in the Aftermath in terms of scores. Great, Pretty great scores to uh, fairly, you know, average films. But that's... Um, yeah, that, that's that's stuff to, stuff to look into. But uh, that, that's where we're going to call it a day for this episode of, uh, of Between the Notes. And um, we think it's fitting, really, to celebrate the Oscar success of... Um, of Black Panther. We're going to play you out with a uh, orchestral piece from that film scored by the Czech um, Philharmonic Orchestra and orchestrated by Robert Ziegler. And this is part of a new album from uh, Sony Music Masterworks called Ultimate Superheroes, Music to Save the World 2. And it's the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra playing a varied list of pieces from all kinds of different superhero movies of the last few years. So The Dark Knight Rises... Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, Suicide Squad, Superman. Um, so going back to you know, Superman, X Men Two, things like that. So it's 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 a it's a fun album, and uh, they we're going to play the United Nations and end titles theme uh, part of that from Black Panther, which is a, I, I love. I think it's a great ending double header of a, of a of a of a piece, Sean. I, I mean, I think it ends. It's got one of those really bravura sort of brings it all together final tracks which just make you want to punch the air as you leave the cinema. Yeah, it's really, really cathartic, isn't it? You really, Ludwig Göransson really makes you feel like you've been on a journey with these characters. I mean, under the baton of Robert Ziegler, who's one of the great conductors, one of the one of the great interpreters of other people's film music as well. This is spectacular. Yeah, I couldn't um, think of best treatment for this particular um, Oscar-winning score. Yeah, so well done again to Black Panther, and um, we'll play you out with this. We will be back soon for uh, another episode of Between the Notes but uh, as always thanks for listening to the music and to us and we'll see you next time
Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening.